Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Russ Terry, founder and CEO of Life Coach Radio Network. Today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. That's audibletrial.com slash lifecoachradio. And now, here's today's show. Hello and welcome to Being a Leader Live with Brenda Baird. I'm your host, Brenda Baird. I'm a certified professional coach and energy leadership master practitioner. Today's show is focusing on leading a workforce with multiple generations. It's a fascinating topic, and given that today we have four and in some cases five generations working together, this topic is sure to resonate with many people. Joining me today to discuss multiple generations in the workplace is an author, speaker, consultant, and expert in generations, Hayden Shaw. Hayden, welcome to Being a Leader, live with Brenda Baird, and thank you so much for joining the show today. Hi, Brenda. Hi. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time to this show, uh, we explore topics that are important to being a great leader. And as a core energy coach, I help my clients to understand how their energy shows up in some of these various situations, like working with generations, and hope to provide insights that may have the potential to shift your perspective and raise your energy in order to remove some of the barriers you might have to success. So today, if you have questions about working with multiple generations, please give us a call. The number to call in is 646 716 9397. Press 1 to get in the queue, and you'll have an opportunity to ask questions directly to Hayden Shaw or myself. So, again, it is truly an honor to have you on the show today, Hayden. And um, for those listeners who may not know you personally, you are the author of a book called Sticking Point how to get four generations working together in the 12 places where they come apart. (laughs) Uh, You are the author also of uh, some of Franklin Covey's best-selling workshops, two of which are called Leading Across Generations and Working Across Generations. So you've really spent a great deal of time researching this topic of generations. You have a regular blog on Huffington Post. And both Time and the Washington Post have sort of described you as the guru of leadership and an expert on cultural differences at the office. So I'm really looking forward to us discussing this important workshop workplace topic. So to start us us off, Hayden, why don't you just uh, give us a little bit of your background and what actually attracted you to the topic of generations? Well, I've been working with Frank and Covey now for 25 years, and before that, I got interested in understanding why the baby boomers weren't didn't think the same way as the generations before them, and so I started studying generational differences about 25 years ago. Ah, working with baby boomers, and so now some Who would have thought the baby boomers yeah. were the problem then? 
<laughs> Who would have thought? The right? radicals. <laughs> yeah. Complaining so we, about their pump and their pantyhose and their big shoulder pads if you're a woman. And really being a rebel and flipping your tie over the top and not putting it through the knot. If you were yeah. really going to stick it to the man as you head yeah. into the corporate office. Wow, isn't that something? How times change, right? <laughs> so why don't we uh, sort of help the listeners to understand what are the current generations? And can you kind of briefly describe what each one of them, what their characteristics is or what their main differences are? Yeah, briefly. Um, as you look at the different, you know, because we could go on this for a while, but if you look at the just the years of the generations, um, yeah. you've got traditionalists born before 1945, you know, right at the end of World yep. War II, and then the boomers, uh, the big baby boom after World War II, and then early 60s, Xers, um, up until 1980. Mm. Some people put them in the mid-90s. I and Gallup put them in the right around 1980. Mm-hmm. And then millennials, 81 through 2001. And by the way, yeah. you've probably heard of millennials called Gen Y. Yeah. Before, you know, millennials prefer the name millennials significantly more than they prefer Gen Y. As a matter of fact, on surveys, when given a list of options, Gen Y is their least favorite option. Isn't so that that's why something? I call them millennials. Although you'll see them called Gen Y just as often in in newspapers or magazines. Yeah, I, I've often wondered that what happened to the Gen Y or you know generation because I had heard them referred to that for such a long time. So now I understand they they prefer to be called uh, the millennials. And so what about the current generation that is just now coming of age uh, to the place where they may be in the workplace? You know those folks born after you know say 2002. Yep, the folks born after 2002. Um, they're definitely starting into part-time jobs while they finish up high school. And, um, you know, they're going to be moving into college. Some will, um, uh, if it stays on trend with with, uh, the millennials and what surveys show around the world, in developed nations over, you know, 60% of um, people in high school. So, by the way, there's no name for this next generation. You see them called Gen Z all the time. I think that's yeah. a bad choice because that means the world has to end since yeah. we're out of letters. And um, I think that's just a bad choice. Uh, plus, no generation likes to be named based on a comparison to another generation. Yeah. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I have heard them called the 911 generation um, because this particular generation has grown up in the United States under a time of, of – you know, the world trade disaster and mm-hmm. our country being mm-hmm. at war. So I have, I have also heard them referred to the nine as the nine one one generation. Um, well, what's amazing, just to that? digress for just a moment. I was just at Andrew air force base with uh-huh. the air force on Friday. And um, it's just fascinating that um, 80% of airmen, they call them airmen, airmen and women, um, 80% of them have never known a time when the United States has not been in a conflict or are they referred to as yeah. at war. And yeah. so you're right. That's a, um, that's a defining characteristic. Now, a couple of pieces to that. The first one is uh, the traditionalists were in what's called the total war. So World War I and World War II were total wars. Everyone yeah. in the country was involved, whereas today um, we delegate war. Only 2% of the population is involved in the military. Yeah. And so that's a huge difference. 
And that's okay. why, you know, the boomers were even, you know, there was a small percentage of boomers involved in Vietnam, but the draft meant that everybody had to be. Yeah. Whereas um, um, the last 20 years of engagement, while it gets lots of news and people have strong opinions on where we, on whether we should be involved, it doesn't have the same impact on a generation as um, certainly World War One and World War Two did as total wars, nor even as it did on um, on the baby boomers and the rebellion that some of them uh, yeah. were a part of. But for millennials, it's a more pervasive kind of thing. It simply means that you can't count on things. Yeah. And so don't postpone to the future things because you you can't necessarily count on it and you can see you can see what we're scared of in our horror films and for the traditionalists we were scared of the big bombs so we had Mothra and Godzilla and now we're scared of terrorists so we have zombies zombies <laughs> but terrorists that's are a different true. kind of fear and they impact a generation differently so yeah that's a very good point so in short homeland generation has been proposed um and I don't think it's going to stick because most genera- generations don't like to be compared to another generation, and they don't like they don't usually gravitate toward they don't stick negative names don't stick. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> so if you could uh, put a couple of words to the traditionalist generation, what how would you describe that generation? Well, you bet. In the sticking points book, I actually describe them as um um. As people who are um, loyal and respectful, mm-hmm. so they have a they have an idea of decorum or manners or respect, what it means to show respect, mm-hmm. and then they also are quite loyal to organizations or institutions. Yeah. Um, in 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 nonprofit organizations, my second book is about generations and religion. And uh, the traditionalists are much more willing to give to causes, both religious and not. And uh, other generations, even though they sometimes have more money um, than the traditionalists did at, a, at their same age, um, are not as generous. And they're also they also have lower standards of what they expect from organizations. Where from the baby boomers on, we have very high expectations of of what are, what organizations will deliver and provide. Yeah, I think we see so much of that in the workplace today. The traditionalists, you see them recording years of service, you know, 35, 40 years. Um, I worked for one organization that had, you know, seven people celebrate 50 years of service with the organization right out of high school, start their job, and they just stay with the organization until they retire. So definitely loyalty is a big component of that generation. Um, and how about the baby boomers then? A couple of words that describe them. Well, for the baby boomers, they are competitive. Hmm. And uh, the baby boomers are high expectations. Matter of fact, the, the book that coined the phrase baby boomer was called High Expectations. Ah. Our great expectations. And so yeah. the baby boomers are a generation that's never been as happy as the other three generations. Is that right? five percentage points less happy than than the other generations. It's That's because their expectations were so high. So high, yeah. And then, of course, we know what happens when our expectations are so high. We oftentimes become perfectionists, 
and then that leads to never really able to be fulfilled. I see well, that a lot. It's in true. The, the baby boxes. boomers did create a lot of new high-quality structures. Um, they've transformed Little League. When I was growing up, you uh, tamped down, you, you rounded up some people to play baseball, you tamped down some spots, or if you're in the city, you cleared out um, a vacant lot, and you organized it. You made it happen. But, but yeah. baby boomers, they like to organize things, and so, you know, suddenly there was um, a, an umpire, some high school kid that got paid, there yeah. was uh, lights so you could play at night. There was a concession stand. Everybody had to work the concession stand. You had to bring snacks, and you had to literally pry your kid away from uh, my kids, at least my millennial kids. You had to pry them away from Power Rangers and tell them to go get dressed because we are going to baseball. <laughs> we are going to the game. Been organized yeah. by adults is another thing we have to make you do. Ah, <laughs> oh, no doubt. <laughs> I'm afraid to say I'm a baby boomer, and you've described a lot of my behaviors, so that's why I giggle. Well, we have so more the, lawyers than any other boomers. I'm a, I'm on the border of boomer and Xer, and we have more lawyers. Boomers have more lawyers than any other generation. Yeah. Um, and so we definitely created a lot more organization and a lot more structure to things for good or for bad. For good and or for bad. in some cases, it was great. Yeah. And then other times it uh, it can be viewed differently. So those Gen Xers then, 1965 through 1980, how do we describe oh, them? Oh, they're good people. Those Gen Xers, they're small generation comparatively. Yeah. Um, I said earlier that horror films tell us what we're scared of, and we were scared of babies while the Xers were being born. <laughs> you can see it in the whole horror genre. Um, the entire time, they, it started with Rosemary's Baby and ended with Children of the Corn, but the entire time Xers were being born, there were films about evil babies. Wow. Spawn of Satan babies. Wow. And, and so thus, horror, horror tells us what we're scared of as a society, and we were scared of babies. <laughs> babies That's will sad. ruin your life, and little Chucky, even baby toys are going to try to kill you. <laughs> I don't know, clowns too, I'm thinking, Hayden. <laughs> clowns, clowns are going to get you too. Exactly. That's right. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, baby on board, suction cup, yeah. um, signs started appearing in the back windows of cars or minivans. Yeah. And we started having kids again. And yeah. uh, so there were three breakout movies um, after Children of the Corn was a flop. There was Baby Boom. Three Men and a Baby, Raising Arizona, mm. all sleeper hits that all indicated a major trend that we were now into babies again. Babies weren't evil. Babies would transform your life. Yeah, give you purpose and happiness and, yeah. You bet. And you know the Disney Corporation has, has thanked their lucky stars that that trend <laughs> took place because suddenly family was the answer to to everything, yeah. Whereas there was one year when the boomers were being born that um, a car came higher on the list of what makes people happy. It was only one year, but a car, the auto, their automobile was higher than children. Oh, wow. That says a lot about the generation. It really does. Yeah, fear and how that drives our behaviors all from the emotions that we feel. And then here come the millenniums then, 1981 to 2001. And you hear a lot about them. Oh, you so hear a lot about them. And, and 
Yeah. The reason we're interested in it is because they're new. The newest generation is always more interesting because they're new. You you know, you you follow the things that are posted about the generations. So you do a search on the different generations and, and ten things come out of millennials to any one on another generation. Mm-hmm. And it's because you know, they're new and we're trying to yeah. understand them. And so, you know, millennials have some really interesting characteristics. Um, they have a high focus on self-esteem. Hmm. And their parents raised them with self-esteem as the guiding measurement of uh, a, a kind of a guiding goal. Our goal is to produce children of high self-esteem. Because when they were being raised, the, the worst thing a parent could hear was not that your child ha- had to be held back. You know, In big football yeah. states, they hold them back till 15 before they start them up just so they're big for the front line when they get to high school. And so we're not opposed to holding children back, whereas when I was growing up, to be held back was um, just the greatest shame. Today, the greatest yeah. shame would be if you know if a parent were, were called in and you know, they said, well, we think your child has low self-esteem, and that's what explains their bad behavior. You know, parents would just yeah. be horrified. Oh, it's your side of the family. Yeah. And, um, what more could uh, I have whereas, done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so self-esteem is the guiding principle. And uh, technology, of course. A pervasive yeah. technology. Yeah. Tribal. In that technology allows you to have a large group of uh, friends. I remember my oldest son, who's now 26, he was in high school. And uh, his freshman year of high school, he asked me for $200 to get Christmas presents. And I said, oh, finally, I'm not going to get something lame. And I did. He gave me Kenny G's duets. <laughs> he said, I know you like jazz. I said, I, I, I do. I do. I like Clifford Brown a lot. Uh, Kenny yeah. G's duets is kind of like funeral home music. And so I was horrified, <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why he needed all that money. Well, he had 40 friends to buy for. He goes, I'm just trying uh, to buy a present for my closest friends. My closest friends. Yeah, I experienced the same thing with my daughter's wedding. Um, you know, the the uh, head count for the wedding got big rel- relatively fast and we we looked at who was invited as the family and then when we looked at the friend list it was like huge and I said well could we cut back there and she's like no we're close to all these people these are our closest friends and it was a very large number and I'm like how do you possibly stay connected to all of those people but it's very true they have wide circles very how do you stay circles. connected to them yeah electronically of course uh, group texting, she, group texting yeah. changed the game. Yeah, and she still visits with them, but I think electronically is is the, you know the, physically she couldn't keep, you know physically in touch with them. So you're right, it's electronic. Wow, that's fascinating. It's just fascinating to look at the differences in the generations, and when we look at where they come from we can see that they really have some significant differences that can really butt up against each other. So I, I actually read a review about your book, Sticking Points, and the review was by Stephen M. R. Covey, who says that Sticking Point paints a vision of another way, a better way, a way to transform a team stuck in generational differences into a team that sticks together. So congratulations on that wonderful review. Um, from Stephen Covey, that's really incredible. And the book really goes into a lot of detail about each one of the generations, their characteristics, and um, sort of how to better understand each and every one of them. 
You know, in core energy coaching, which is the fundamental uh, philosophy that I coach with, we view energy awareness in much the same way, that it is transformational to help people to get unstuck from some old patterns or beliefs that don't serve them well or that may cause them conflict. And your book in particular mentions that there are like 12 places where leaders or teams can get stuck uh, when it comes to generational conflicts. So could you kind of give us a, a, a rundown on where those 12 places are? Oh, you bet. The, yeah. um, uh, let me just give them to you in alphabetical order. Okay. Communication mm -hmm. comes up a lot. Decision-making, yeah. uh, um, dress code, mm. feedback comes up a lot, fun mm. at work, knowledge transfer mm. is coming up more often because clients are now having boomers retire. Um, yeah. Loyalty is always in the top three. Yeah. Meetings, policies, respect is in the top three. Training. Yeah. And work ethic is the number one. Questions number about work ethic come up twice as much as any other sticking point. Is that right? And why do you think that is? Uh, because those of us who grew up within the shadow of the farm mm. have certain things that make sense to us. Uh, the way I define a sticking point is an answer that one generation gives and then adds duh to the end of it that another generation just stares back at and says, no, that's not it. This is it, duh. And so when we just, when we, when somebody asks us a question and we just respond with a quick, not even thinking about it answer, with a duh at the end of it, we got a sticking point. Yeah. When, the, when, a, when, a, when generations answer the same question differently without thinking, yeah. that's a generational sticking point. And so when it comes to work ethic, um, those of us who are older, who may not have grown up on farms, but grew up within the shadow of a farm. In other mm -hmm. words, uh, we grew up in an era where the great migration from farm to city had already happened, but we still had grandparents, aunts, uncles, relatives that uh, still farmed, or um, we had family members who grew up on a farm and still had farm sayings. Early to bed, early to rise has been Franklin's famous one. My grandfather on the farm, used to say, we're burning daylight. Yeah, we're burning daylight. And so there's a routine to the farm. There are expectations about the farm. Take, you take care of the farm, and the farm will take care of you, is how he would say it. Yes. Yes. Whereas in the, in the city, the farther we get away from the traditionalists, the farther we are from the farm. So now only 2% of the population farms just like 2% mm. is in the military. Yeah. And most people don't have a firsthand experience at the farm outside of a petting zoo. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And so they're not driven by the sunlight. They're driven by electrons. Yeah. Um, in the sunlight, you got to get up early to do your work. In the world of electrons, you can do your work anytime, 24-7, that you choose to do it. That's right. And, uh, you know, some industries aren't like that. You know, I was working in a foundry, and I said, well, I understand people can't take their work home. Maybe don't go out in the garage. It's 1,500 degrees. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, so in a lot of – in service businesses, you need to be there when it opens. Um, yes. But in the, in, in the world of the electron, 
Um, you can, I mean, you can literally in the holiday season have a store open from seven in the morning till twelve at night. Yeah, that's right. You're not driven by sunlight. And so that's the big difference is many of us who are older still have expectations of what it means to work hard. We show yeah. up before starting time. We work until starting time because mm-hmm. if you pull your laptop out and work at home, that's your choice. Whereas mm-hmm. younger generation, people see work as much more porous than that. I may mm-hmm. come in at 9.15 and leave by 4.30 because the Pilates instructor, this is an actual thing I've heard, the Pilates instructor at 5 is much better than the Pilates instructor at 6. <laughs> and I'll log on tonight and have everything done before I go to bed at 11.30. That's right. Yeah, and the traditionalist doesn't really view work in that way. I've heard it described, you know, if you hold your hand up, that, that for the traditionalist, work is the hand, and all these other pieces sort of fit between the fingers, you know, your social life, your Oh, Pilates. that's interesting. Yeah. yeah the, the way I say it is traditionalists and boomers. For traditionalists and boomers, work is the steak, and yeah. um, I guess yours is much more vegan-friendly. The uh, work is the steak, and everything else is the dessert or the appetizer or the, uh, you know, or, or side dish. Um, and for Xers and millennials, um, life is a waffle and work is one square on that waffle and boss, yeah. you've been getting a lot of work syrup on the other squares of my waffle. Can that's I have right. Friday off to make up? Yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how I've heard it described. And for the younger generation, the hand is life and work fits into one of those spaces between the fingers. So, yeah. So it's just a totally different view on work, work life balance. Um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, the, the differences. So it really, then when you think about it, could really cause some conflict. So I, I also offer in the promotion of this radio show, I offer folks to actually send in emails um, to, uh, the, to ask a question or have a comment about um, what we're talking about. And we've gotten an email that, that said, ha, you're so right. Um, this person says, having that autonomy gives you a better sense of life balance and having better experiences. So this person says that they are of the millennium generation. So validation um, of your expertise, Hayden, and, and we're really hitting a chord today. Well, great. Let me hit yeah. another chord as far as millennials go. Yeah. I did a TED Talk in April that's, you know, it's uh, they take a while for the volunteers that edited them to get them up. So it won't be up till August in the official TED site. Um, but the, uh, but I can get you a link for it in case you want to yeah. post it where people can, can see it um, in its unedited form. So I did it. It's just one of the nine minute TED talks. And what it was called is half of what you've heard about the millennials is wrong. And yeah. as I pointed out in that TED talk, half of what we hear about the millennials is just statistically invalid, but even yeah. half of what we hear that's research based is still wrong because it's not about millennials. It's about a new life stage called emerging adulthood. Yes. And so emerging adulthood, you know, now that we live 30 years longer, and yeah. at the turn of the century, life expectancy was 48. Now it's 78. When you add yeah. 30 years and 100 years, what you have is um, two new life stages. One of them comes between 18 and 27. The other comes after a person retires before their health um, declines to the point where it limits their freedom. Yeah. And so this new life stage on the front end is called emerging adulthood. It's between adolescence and early adulthood. And one of the things we know about it is 
that uh, when you ask people over 30, when does full adulthood begin, they say 27, 28. When you ask people under 30, when does full adulthood begin, they say 27 or 28. Everybody agrees that it's there uh-huh. on surveys. And it's characterized by freedom, change, and choice. So take the sticking point of loyalty. When people say, what do we do to keep the millennials? What I say is, well, let's match that up against the characteristics of a new life stage called freedom, change, and choice. All right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with there being millennials. It has to do with the fact that every generation, including what's being called Generation Z, the next well, I call them next generation because mm-hmm. nobody agrees on the name yet. The next yeah. generation will go through it. The Xers went through it. The boomers were the first generation to go through it. Yeah. It was just much shorter because they only had four years when they were in university. Yeah. So when we look at when we look at loyalty and we say, "Why, you know, what's wrong with this?" This was a really good one. I had this millennial written down in my succession plan. Mm-hmm. And then they just told me two days ago that they met someone on Match.com and think they're going to move to Seattle and see if they can make it work. <laughs> yeah. What is wrong with them? I had a mortgage and a yeah. kid by twenty-six. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, because your virgin daughter was only four years old, long. Yeah. It's so funny because when I hear my coaching clients say phrases like, what's wrong with them? Or, you know, there's something not right about this. Um, it really sends up a red flag for me. You know, my coaching philosophy is centered on the concept that leaders have to love people and that the only way you can really lead people is if you work to understand them. You have to stop trying to change people and learn to embrace what may be different and learn to um, appreciate them for who they are and and what they bring. Well, I talked right over you. In the book, I call that fixing. Yeah. That it's one of the approaches we take that sidetracks us with yeah. generations. And, but it applies to any difference, as you've pointed out. When we yeah. try to fix another person, we are getting into uh, we're getting into trouble in the relationship. You know, I did marriage yeah. counseling in a past life, and people only came. Most people came in when they wanted to pay somebody to fix the person they kiss. Yeah. And the problem is, the more we try to change the person we kiss into somebody else. Um, the less they like us and we like them. And, uh, yeah. you know, almost every happy couple I've ever met, they eventually say, it is what it is. They yeah. are who they are. I either love this person or we're going to have a long go of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I knew they were that way when I married them, but I thought I could, you know, change them. <laughs> I mean, I you hear it, you know, here it comes out. I recently read an article, it's called The 18 Behaviors of Emotionally Intelligent People. It was written by Travis Bradbury, and he wrote that there's decades of research that point to emotional intelligence as being the critical factor that sets apart, you know, high-performing leaders from the rest of the pack. And he goes on to say that emotionally intelligent people are actually curious about people that are around them. And this curiosity is actually a product of their empathy. And it is the gateway to them having this higher level of what they call EQ or emotional intelligence. And so the more you care about the people around you and what they're going through, and the more curious you are about about that, um, 
you just become a greater leader. And I know in your book, the, the sticking points, you sort of lay out five steps to help people move through some of these generational conflicts. And I know this concept of emotional intelligence is sort of weaved through these five steps. So if you're willing, would you, would you like to share those steps with us, the five steps to moving through generational conflict? You bet. It helps us lead through the situation, whether we're, you know, whether we have a leadership role, whether a manager in our workplace or our volunteer organization, or we're just a person on the team. Um, The first thing is, if we don't acknowledge the generational difference, then we can't talk about it as something other than you're messed up. Yeah. Um, Let's just go back to couples for a moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're the organized one and they're the spontaneous one, mm-hmm. you can say, "What is wrong with you? Money does not grow on trees." I know, but let's go away this weekend. No, let's plan it out five weekends from now so we can shop for the best price and clip coupons. And <laughs> uh, you know, it's so hard to be spontaneous on a budget, there, baby. Let's go. Yeah. And um, uh, and so they fall in. I, oh, I love him because he's so spontaneous. But it makes me completely uncomfortable when he is. And I don't know what is wrong with her. The fact that we're financially solvent is a beautiful thing, but wow, she's such a buzzkill. And um, (laughs) if we can't acknowledge that you are, you like it all organized in a spreadsheet, and I like to move the lines like in a paint program, yeah, we it, we will make it about us, and that Brenda is when you when you hear people say what is wrong with them, what you're hearing people say is it's about them, not about something else. And yes. when it's about them, the only solution is to get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, because that all the end. energy, yeah, all the energy goes to changing, which turns to conflict and it turns to stress and anxiety and unhappiness because there is no no such thing as changing another person. Yeah. <laughs> as sad as that makes me sometimes raising kids, that is the true story, isn't it? Yeah, I know. In your book, you sort of lay out the five steps as the, the first step of being about acknowledge. Uh, and that's where all, we were. And so when we acknowledge, yeah. what we say is, this is something that is not about us, but it's a, uh, not about you, but it's about us. About us, yeah. This is, this is a generational difference with us, and a difference is a different thing than saying you're messed up. Yes. And so acknowledging it makes – acknowledging it is where a leader, whether you are just a person on the team who brings it up or whether you're the manager – it's where right. we turn it from this thing that gets us stuck into the beginnings of sticking us together because we're focused on the us, not on the you. Yeah, absolutely. And the well, semantics the of the words are really important there. You know, I have to, I just have to rephrase that back for the listeners is to say there's a problem with you that we need to solve or to say this is the difference between us how can we move forward is a totally different set of words and we'll get a totally different reaction. So the semantics of acknowledging, you know, the words we use to acknowledge it are also very critical. The next step is, it just ties into what you said earlier about Mm -hmm. appreciating. Yeah. Appreciating. So the way I say it in the book is wise. If we understand, if we focus on the why they're different, wise unite 
whereas what's divide. And so most stuff on the Internet out there about generations, it's not bad. Some of it's even research-based, but it's just a bunch of what's. Yeah. What's this generation like? What's that generation like? Yeah, but why are they like that? Yeah. Matter of fact, just a real practical takeaway for any of your folks there. If somebody's complaining about at work about somebody from a different generation, say, go find out why. If you're a manager, do not get involved until they come back with a why. That will eliminate half of the tensions around generational differences with that one thing. Just send them back to say, go find out why that makes sense to them. I don't know why they wear their earbuds in their cube. You can't call over the cube and get their attention. You have to actually yeah. get up and walk over there to them. Yes. Well, why don't you go ask them why they wear earbuds? Yeah. Well, what you hear is when you ask them, because you baby boomers talk all day long. Chatter, <laughs> chatter, 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 chatter. This is why you don't go home, because you interrupt each other all day long. I wear my earbuds to drown out your chatter. Isn't that amazing? So here the, the generation's thinking they're wearing those earbuds because they're actually lazy, listening to music. They're not paying attention. I don't know what they're doing, playing video games, right? Why do they have those earbuds in all the time? Why aren't they open and aware? And then come to find out they're actually trying to focus on their work. So just opening <laughs> that exactly dialogue. Right. Yeah, so opening that dialogue helps us to really find out what the real differences are and then to begin to appreciate what's actually happening fabulous now why do the boomers why do the boomers not like the earbuds because knowledge transfer was done orally when they were being coming up in an organization you just listened into the chatter and you extracted from the chatter the values of the organization you extracted the key how you make this work you extracted that tacit knowledge that you only can get through experience yeah. And so when boomers see millennials or Xers with headphones on, they're thinking they don't care. How right. are they going to learn this stuff? We can, we're not transferring that. knowledge because yeah. the way knowledge was transferred to me is now broken. Yeah. I have heard that. They have the earbuds in. They don't care. That's so true. Wow. Sounds from advice. a knowledge transfer standpoint, knowledge transfer won't be done the same way for them as it was done for the boomers. And so the boomers interpret that as, I don't know what else to do to transfer knowledge. And because they have those in, they obviously don't want that knowledge. I'm giving it to them the same way my boss gave it to me when I started out. Yeah. Fascinating. When we understand why we can go, Oh, I see. We have a, just pick the sticking points. We have a communication. We have a knowledge transfer. We have a meeting, and we have a respect issue going on simultaneously, simultaneously when we understand why. Oh, their common needs are to gain information and to have the autonomy. Our listener wrote in about the autonomy to make decisions in our life, but they approach those common needs in such different ways, and, well, they answer yeah. the same question with four different answers, and that is a classic yeah. definition of sticking point. It is. So first we need to acknowledge the differences, then we need to appreciate the difference, and then now what? Then we can only then can we flex. Once we flex. appreciate, then we can flex. Well, whoa, 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 wait, wait. If you need to concentrate, and I need to make sure you get this stuff so that you can do this job so I can retire without guilt. <laughs> um, what? How are we going to do that? Because when I was learning the ropes, I spent 10 years listening to the uh, 
more experienced people talk. And then I picked it up from there. And once, once I knew the endings to their stories, once they heard me tell their stories to somebody new, they knew I got it and I was okay. And that was my that was my qualifying threshold to be ready for a promotion or for more responsibility. And so yeah. they needed to know that I'd passed the training. And the training came from listening in. Yeah. Well, how do we flex now to do that differently? How do we pass yeah. on knowledge differently? Because the boomers are right. We need to do that. So yeah. how do we flex for the different generations? And um, – you know, one of the best ways is the younger generation almost always looks aggravated when you go and ask them a question when they have earbuds in because they have to pull an earbud out. Yes. And they give you that look of, you would not believe how bothersome this is that you are interrupting me. Yes. And what they mean is, why couldn't you send this as an email? Yeah. This has to be a big event for us to actually talk personally. I don't mind talking personally, but it's a lot faster on email. Yeah, more efficient. Yeah. And so um, the younger generations will have to flex and say, okay, why do the older generations like to talk in person? Mm. Oh, because they dated in person, because that's how real communication happens, because when you care about another person, you need to make eye contact. Yeah. Not because eye contact is the only way to do it, but because eye contact is well, the language that feels most natural to the baby boomers. Mm. And when you see it, what it is, it is a baby boomer saying, this relationship matters to me, so I want to do it right, which is why I'm coming to talk to you in person. Yes. Instead of what? What? Six more of these, and I will miss Pilates, boomer people. (laughs) Send me an email, and I'll respond to you after Pilates. And it'll all be good, right? Seriously, I have a 27-year-old virtual admin. She is phenomenal. My wife just says, can we adopt her? She's only one year older than our kids. Could just adopt her. (laughs) And so she's great. She's 27. And um, normally I would pick up the phone. If there's a quick question, I'd pick up the phone. She sends me an email. Yeah. So we talk once a week in a planned time. We get on Zoom. Um, We have eye contact and all of that. She agrees it works much better much faster to do it on Zoom. We share a screen. But during the week, it's only if there's a fairly important, urgent thing that I'll call. Yeah. Because she prefers to email, handles yeah. it in between in between babies and everything else she's got going on in her other side business. Yeah. So if I hear you correctly, really, when you talk about step three as being flex, you're not talking about the baby boomers changing for the millenniums, which is often what you read. You know, we all have to change because they're coming. (laughs) The millenniums are coming. What you say is as a group, we both need to have awareness. All generations need to have an awareness, and we all need to find a way in which to flex and adjust so that we can avoid these sticking all of us. It's not just one generation changing for another. Actually, in Panama, where the uh, uh, where there are far fewer boomers and traditionalists in the workforce than there is here in the mm. United States, and where many organizations are already millennial dominant, mm-hmm. the turnover issues are with boomers and Xers who are leaving to go to another company where they feel more at home. Ah. Uh. 
One of the biggest yep. studies on generations in Panama discovered that. Now, I think we're going to see that as a trend across the world over the next uh, over the next ten years, and we're going to have special sessions for millennials on how to retain your boomer employees. Right. Because the bottom line is, every generation goes blind to the other generations. Yeah. And a millennials, when they become a majority, will do the same thing that boomers and Xers have. Well, it's my sandbox. You need to adjust us. Yeah. No. Um, now, if you don't have any boomer clients and you don't need any boomer expertise, then you don't have to adjust for boomers. It's it's not nice, but that's a blunt business reality. But if yeah. you got if you got anybody you need to sell to who's a boomer, you better have some boomers around, or you're yeah. going to end up being as clumsy communicating with them as the boomers were when they first started to use social media for marketing. Yes. And all they did was take billboard and print and put it onto you know onto Twitter, and it sounded like they were shouting all that they were interrupting the social conversation to say, "Buy my stuff." And uh, basically an entire generation just rolled their eyes and dismissed them. Yeah. And left Facebook and moved to Instagram to get away from all of us boomers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. My children are no longer on Facebook. And it broke my heart. So and now it's just Facebook awful. Is, and then, then there's a lot of millennials on Facebook. Um, but basically they left at us older <laughs> generations after we moved in. That's true. It is hard. Okay. To, the way I like to say it is, it is hard to date somebody. It is hard to go find girls when your grandmother's giving you a vampire bite. I mean, it's just harder. <laughs> You're right, Aiden. It could be pretty clumsy there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Step four. What do we do after we? Step flex four. Once we're adjust. able to flex, then we can leverage. Because these build on each other, right? The attitude that we get in step two, appreciate, allows us to flex without gritting our teeth. Oh, okay, yeah. now that I get it, well, how can we do this? Yeah. It's different than, fine. Every workshop says you got to adjust for the millennials. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, once we get it, we're like, duh. Yeah. Why can't we just do this? Yeah. Leverage says, no, why can't we just do this? Wait. What don't I know about our customers that you know about our customers because I'm actually our target market shifted and you know I'm I'm a na- I, I'm an immigrant to your generation. What don't I know? What don't I know? Mhm. Yep. And this is where reverse this is where reverse mentoring or better better said co-mentoring comes in. Yeah. Yeah, I'll show you the ropes and how I got to where I am in my career, but the career path has changed so much in the last 20 years. Your your career path will be different. Now, I'm willing to sit and, and give you some advice around the politics of the organization, but are would you also be willing to um, help me understand our market better? What yeah. is Snapchat and why should we care? It just seems like one of multiple, plus they disappear. Other than Tiger Woods, who else needs Snapchat? <laughs> um, we need our marketing to last. And, yeah. oh, no, well, here, here, Boomer Man, here's why Snapchat can actually be helpful for us in getting our message across. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a sense of urgency that it creates. So you've got to have something compelling that people are going to forward with a sense of urgency, and Snapchat's going to expire unless you do a screenshot. So how do you? So suddenly you're going, oh, now I get it. Yep, now I get it. We need each other. And lastly, lastly we resolve. 
Yeah. There's some sticking points, uh, half of the sticking points we can't do just by flexing. Some of yeah. them we have to make a decision on doing it one way or the other. Now, we can yeah. adjust our feedback. To, um, we can flex. We don't even need to resolve feedback. We just adjust our feedback to whoever we're talking to. Anybody can do that no matter what level you are in the organization. You can adjust your feedback. Yep. But when it comes to meetings, we can't do meetings four different ways. Right. So we flex as much as we can, and then we leverage the strengths of each generation with meetings, and then we just make a decision on where we'll meet in the middle, and we resolve it for now. We yeah. put a little stake in the ground, and we say, this is how we're going to do it for now. And, you know, in two or three years when things change, um, when the percentages of the different generations change, then we open it up again and say, how do we make this work for everybody? This is how we keep from having organizations that shift from being boomer dominant to millennial dominant. How do we That's make right. this work for everybody? That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, my coaching practice is founded on the core energy coaching and very much the same as the five steps you just went through. The first step is really identifying who the client is. Then they begin to accept who they are. And they begin to learn that everyone is shaped by how they were raised, what time period they grew up in, what were the circumstances around their life, and that every experience they have shapes their beliefs, their assumptions, their interpretations of themselves and of their lives. And so I absolutely love that you've described this particular challenge of working with generations. The leader needs to acknowledge and appreciate the generation that they need to be able to adjust and flex the important next step and that they need to communicate the lang- in the language of that generation. So I just want to remind our, our listening audience that if you have any questions for Hayden, he's provided us with some phenomenal advice today. Please call 646-716-9397. We're about ready to wrap up the show. Press 1 to get in the queue if you have any questions for Hayden. Uh, we talked a little bit about this, Hayden, that um, I've, I read so much about the millennial generation in the news and HR publications, and I, I have gotten the sense that the business world actually sees the millenniums as, like, it's the biggest challenge of the future, but the reality is they're already in the workplace now, which is, you know, I think I'm correct, it's what you've said already. I mean, they're already there. It's not a future situation. It's a current situation. So I wonder, when you think about the millennium generation, how have they really changed the workplace? Well, that's a great question. Nobody's asked me that question before. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, in all the conversations I've had, um, uh, technology Technology has changed. I know that's the most obvious one, but Mm -hmm. the breadth of technology and the conversations around technology. Mm. Number two, they've changed things that we now no longer think that only the older generations have access to the information that allows them Mm. to bring forward smart decisions. Yeah. And it brings up then a whole transparency issue, right? So access to information is so readily available to them, and the other generations hold that so close to their chest. It brings up the question of trust and transparency then. This is a generation who has seen people build 
fortunes and knowledge as content experts by giving all their stuff away. Mm-hmm. Whereas previous generations paid a lot of money for proprietary research and then held on to it for their life. I mean, people yeah. would actually try to steal briefcases so they could get corporate espionage. And today, there's more information in a Google search <laughs> than yeah. a senior vice president of marketing had in a Fortune 40 company 25 yeah. years ago. Yeah. And so any of your employees, your millennial employees, can come to a meeting and say, based on this this report that came out last night, I think we ought to take a different look at how we launch this product. And you would have been asked to sit down and shut up in a past era because mm-hmm. you have you, there's no way you have access to information that's better than the information we paid Gallup to get. We paid Gallup a couple million dollars to get. So yes. would you quit commenting in ignorance? You're wasting all of our time. Mm-hmm. Hence, the reason the sticking point of respect is about sit down and shut up and keep your hands in the bus until you've proven yourself and paid your dues and know what you're talking about because we don't give access to the key information to everybody until mm-hmm. we know we can trust them. Yeah. And it's not so much because we don't like you, although there was a lot of good old boys network. Yeah. Um, it's because we don't want to waste our time. We don't want to sit in a meeting with people who don't know what they're talking about, offering their best ideas, which are often left field. We don't have time yeah. for that. So it was yeah. the time and energy management as much as it was an exclusivity. Or, um, um, But now that information flows at multiple levels, and now that we have so many different markets, having multiple generations alive today means we have so many different markets. Um, and social media being the you know being the province of the millennials, they're the natives yeah. to it. It's the first yeah. time in the history of the world where the youngest generation is apprenticing older generations. Throughout history, the older generations have apprenticed younger generations. But in yeah. social media technology, the youngest generation is much more adept at the tools of the future, or some yeah. of, or many of the tools of the future. Yeah. That's a shifted mindset from sort of the old structure of corporate America that the younger environment could actually bring more to the table than the seasoned corporate VP. And that's a shift we're going to see, and it's just going to continue to happen. And those leaders who can't see it and relate to it and flex with it and acknowledge it are really going to find themselves struggling to be innovative and get work done. You know, they're just constantly going to be trying to say, I hired wrong or I, you know, what's wrong with Here's what I'd love to say. Yeah. If you you do not have to deal with the generational stuff for another five six years, your or your business your organization really doesn't have to, unless mm-hmm. you hire a lot of millennials, mm-hmm. you don't have to deal with it. But um, it's inevitable, and so if you get to it faster than your competitors get to it, you have now developed a com a competitive advantage that they don't have. Yeah. Because if you can attract, if you can attract and keep millennial talent, you can attract and keep millennial customers. You don't have a millennial um, employee problem. You have a millennial customer problem. You don't realize yet. That's right. Because the millennial generation is, correct me if I'm wrong. It is the largest generation so far, right? It is. And with immigration, it will be by far the largest. It's just a little larger than the boomers are right now. And with yeah. continued immigration, it will be the uh, by far the largest of the generations. Yeah. 
Right. So we talked a little bit about the power of, uh, of technology, and it certainly has touched all of our lives. Um, talk a little bit, if you can, about technology and the workplace and how that becomes a sticking point for organizations. Well, that ties into a that ties into a key point. I know you had said that or, you know, sometimes a, a millennial may have more expertise than a you know than a boomer vice president, and mm-hmm. that is true. Mm-hmm. And boomer vice presidents also have expertise that many millennials don't have because it's about time and position, and it's simply about the number of reps, the number of times you've seen something, and your instincts get honed, and mm-hmm. so. Um, and you can't get that any other way than time and position. And what's great about the millennials is they recognize that. Pew Research Center discovered they think other millennials have the least to teach them in the workplace. Mm. Millennials believe they can learn the least from other millennials. Hmm. So often we think, well, they don't want to learn anything. No, they want to learn it in their language. They want to learn it in their communication style. They want to learn the way they learn. Um so they're not going to sit there listening to the chatter in the cubes, for example. But yeah. they really do think you've got access to stuff they want. That's where co-mentoring comes in. And yeah. even if a millennial gets promoted over Xers into an executive position, um, the smart ones say, "All right, great. Now, how do I learn what I how do I learn what I don't know?" And find trusted advisors. As a matter of fact, I even did a column on how to manage somebody your parents' age for Huffington Post. Yeah. Now, let's go to your question on communication because they're so related. Yeah. Um, younger generations need to quit rolling their eyes when an older generation says, okay, show me that again. Yeah. What they need, because my children, thank goodness for Christina, my admin, because I pay her to show me again how to use the technology. Because <laughs> my children won't help me. I ask them twice, and they're like, what, what is so hard about this? It's all hard, you child who's bought my wife. Now shut up. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Whereas they stare at me like, really? What is wrong with you? How are you functioning in adult society if you can't yeah. figure out what to do with this app? Yep. Or that you don't have the app, or <laughs> you don't even know where to get exactly. the app. Right? <laughs> exactly. All right. If you if you are under fifty, here's what I want. Here's what I beg of you to say instead of frustration. What you say, what you say is, oh, it's so great that you want to learn technology, because the very same young people turn around and go, this older generation they don't want to learn technology. No, because they know that the people who are native to it are going to make them feel stupid with it. <laughs> and if you're an older person, you just need to look at him and say, I'm technology dumb. Yeah. What? Yeah, I'm technology <laughs> dumb. Well, you just go on YouTube and, you know what? I'm not yeah. going to go on YouTube. What? I'm not going to go on YouTube and look up how to do this. I know it's really important to you that we do this more efficiently, and technology is the answer to that. And, you know, I may spend hours learning gourmet cooking, but I'm not going to spend hours learning a new piece of software because you think it's more efficient. Now, if you want to show me how to do it, I'm all in. But if your answer is go look it up online, that's what I did. Um. Probably not I don't know happen. that we're going to get widespread yeah. adoption of this. And so we just miss each other as generations, and the technology can make it a lot better. But yeah. we just kind of stare back at each other and growl. Yeah, that's absolutely right. 
you know, in the coaching process, uh, the goal for me as a coach is to sort of help my clients to find their potential. And it can be a person, a couple, a family, or a corporation, but it really, it really is to help the person to, to really follow their inner person their inner purpose and their passion and to align that with their outer goals and strategies, you know, to help them bring about extraordinary and sustainable results. And what I hear when, when I hear you talking to us about these challenges is if the the leader is ever challenged with a limiting belief in any of these situations that I have nothing to learn from a millennium, or if a millennium thinks I have nothing to learn from Uh, a VP and they're so stupid about technology, any of those beliefs can get in the way of us being aligned with our real purpose for what we do and really having happiness within our lives. And that's really what coaching can allow to do. So like attending your workshops and hearing you speak from time to time, people may take your work, read your book, and then try to implement some of these steps themselves. And they really do still get sort of stuck on a belief. Um, And I really think that's where coaching partners with a lot of the work that you do and helping people to really identify what is it that you believe that you need to maybe shift your perspective on. And one of the things I want to touch on, we're right at the two o'clock hour, so the show's going to run a little bit over today. But one of the things I want to touch on before I let you go is I know that you've written a second book and you've applied all the research and expertise, but you've actually applied all of that to a passion of yours. So tell us a, a, a little bit more about Generation IQ. Christianity isn't dying, millennials aren't the problem, and the future is bright. And what called you to actually write that book? Well, what got me interested in the generation – well, first of all, let me acknowledge, um, because the generations is in the diversity space, let me acknowledge that, uh, you know, religion, organized religion, religion, organized religion, Christianity, and then evangelical Christianity is uh, certainly not everyone's cup of tea. Although um, the same kind of research applies to, you know, to folks who are um, um, uh, folks who are Jewish or Muslim, uh, for example, uh, their own, you know, synagogue or mosque have the same generational challenges. Um, They would just have to apply, you know, they just have to take out the illustrations and and replace them. The same principles apply. Anyway, the um, I just say that because, you know, um, uh, um, what's important to me. And my particular beliefs and values may not match other folks. Um, I got interested in generational research because I was starting churches when I was um, in my 20s. And the boomers quit going to church. And so I began to dig into what was different about them. And so it's interesting that Protestant Christianity gives us an early predictor of generational research. That's what I've observed because it is a completely voluntary organization. And, and uh, my Catholic listeners will know, they'll smile when I say, Catholics tell me you pick your, uh, you know, you pick your mass on which church is close and, you know, which mass is short, and they all, that always gets a chuckle. And uh, whereas Protestants are truly the Baskin-Robbins of religion, where they'll, you know, well, this minister wears his, does his homilies or sermons with his shirt untucked, and this one tucks his shirt in, and this one has formal hymns and and um, stained glass windows, and this one has folding chairs and a bass guitar. And so 
Um, they truly are. And so you can begin to see patterns in behavior long before their research comes out. So I find that fascinating. And I also know that uh, you know I also know that religious people are freaking out because they think the you know they see that people are, they see Pew researchers study that the nuns have grown dramatically and and they misinterpret what that means and mm. um, and so you know and then they you know they don't know how to talk with their emerging adult children and then religion adds really complicated con- conversations. I don't know why. What, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you? You know, our family is Baptist. Our family's yeah. Catholic, you know. Our yeah. family's Jewish, and then they, yeah. then they have freak out conversations, and they get farther away from each other. And now that people live longer, you got multiple generations in the conversation. It's just more complex. It is. Yeah. Generational IQ makes all of that easier. There are things the research shows, both religious research as well as general generational research, that just calms us down so we can focus our energies on the right things rather than and uh, yeah. yeah so that's a um that's an area I'm fascinated with but you know of course it's not what I do for work no yes i think the point that i would like to bring out about it is so often when people hear uh coaches and you see life coaches talk about my fulfillment my passion my life's work they often think that it has to be connected directly to their source of income and i think you're a classic example of someone whose source of income comes from being an author and a speaker and although you are helping people, your passion sort of came through on this generation IQ. It's not your daily job, but it is an expression of your inner purpose. And so we don't always have to have that inner purpose be our source of income. Sometimes our source of income just makes it possible for us to live our life purpose. And I think coaching can help people to really get in touch with what that inner purpose is and that doesn't mean that you're going to quit your job and go off and, you know, and, and paint on the, on the ocean side. It means something totally different. So thank you for sharing your Brenda, story. I, I know we're over time. Let me wrap up with this thought to tie into what you just said. I yeah. was on the phone with a coach. I was on a phone with, with a, you know, with a trained coach. And she mm-hmm. said to me, she was a colleague at Franklin Covey. She said to me, um, uh, in a coaching session we had set up, she said to me, all right, why don't you just write the book? I said, what? She goes, just write the book. She said, when I heard you speak, it helped me immensely not resent the different behaviors in the classroom that millennials exhibit. You need to get your story out. You need to help people. Now, the question is, um, how are you going to do it? And so it was interesting that it was a coach and a colleague who said, all right, I've heard you talk about it now in our coaching times for six months. Yeah. And as my old boss used to say, my old coaching, my old consulting mentor would say, defecate or dismount to an executive team. Hooper, get off the pot. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So it's coaching that helped me make the move into doing both of these, both my vocation and then this other area I care about a lot. Fantastic. Well, listeners, if you want to purchase Sticking Points or Generation IQ, you can find that book on Amazon.com or at your local Barnes & Noble. And if you want to get a little more information on Hayden Shaw and his wonderful work around generations, you can catch him at www.mygenerationalcoach.com. Hayden, we have been friends for a long time. Thank you for being on my show today. You're an inspiration to me. You always have been. 
I so appreciate you. Uh, love the work that you do to help people be the best versions of themselves. Love you, pal. I hope I get to see you again soon. And listeners, join me again on Being a Leader Live with Brenda Baird, Friday, July 8th, when we're going to talk about the importance of building strong relationships in the workplace and how building your network is transformational for both parties. I'll have another special guest. It's Dr. Jeff Williamson. He's the Executive Director of Corporate Engagement at Olivet Nazarene University. So you won't want to miss Dr. Williamson's expertise and inspiring thoughts on building relationships. Hayden, any final thoughts for our listeners before we go? Yeah, just to sum sum up everything we've talked about, um, two things. If you don't increase your generational IQ, you will get wound up on the small things. You'll ignore Mm. the big things, and you'll propose the wrong things. Ah. And when another generation does something that gets under your skin, just remind yourself, um, they don't mean it personally, so I shouldn't take it personally. Um, They don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, how do I get that boomer really wound up today? (laughs) Instead, they're just trying to get through their day, and you think work's a steak, and they think it's a waffle, and so you've got a sticking point. It's not personal. It's just a different way of looking at the world, a different way of answering a question, and the sticking points that you run into are, are what allows you to up your emotional intelligence, get curious, and increase your effectiveness because uh, you you understand how to turn sticking points into the places that stick us together. Oh, beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. The next show is Friday, July 8th at 3 p.m., 2 p.m. Central Time. You can catch the link to the show on my Facebook page, Brenda Bear Coaching, or sign up for regular show announcements on my website, www.brindabairdcoaching.com, and the radio show page to sign up, and you'll notice the show. So, again, thank you, Hayden, for all of your insights and inspiration and i think that's a wrap tommy so until next time be safe and have fun thanks again hayden oh thank you bye-bye